Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Asylum seekers detained at an immigrant detention jail in northern Louisiana are refusing to move into their cells in what their families say is a protest of their prolonged detention. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement confirmed Tuesday that there was an ongoing protest at the Wynn Correctional Center in rural Winfield. ICE said officers inside one of its Louisiana jails pepper-sprayed migrants to end their protest over prolonged detention. ICE spokesman Brian Cox said Wednesday that, quote, a brief calculated use of pepper spray was employed, unquote. He goes on to say about 50 migrants were pepper sprayed and the protesters, quote, subsequently became compliant, unquote. Cox said medical staff evaluated anyone who came into contact with the pepper spray and that no injuries were reported. Lawyers say asylum seekers have staged protests at other ICE jails in Louisiana, where the immigrant detainee population has surged in recent months and hit 8,000 earlier this year. Asylum seekers from Cuba and other countries say they're being detained for months without a court date or a chance to request their release even after passing an initial screening to determine whether they have a viable asylum claim. Some families say that they have detainees sleeping outside in the prison yard. Some of the detainees have inscribed towels and bedsheets with the word Libertad, Spanish for liberty. This week, we speak with two writers, Laura Lesertmer and Wendy Lee Spachek. Spachek and Lesertmer run a writing workshop in the local jail. They tell us about the writing program, what led them to do this project, and its impact on folks on the inside. Then, we share a selection of writings that came out of some recent sessions of the program. Here they are. So I started volunteering in the jail back when the air dorm was still around, the um, Addicts and Recovery Therapeutic Community. And uh, about that same time, I started on the outside doing a creative writing class um, through Women Writing for a Change. Though that wasn't what I was bringing into the jail at that time, over time, um, what I was learning there kind of morphed into what I was bringing into the jail. And so our writing class is, is very, um, very much based on what we do at Women Writing for a Change. We, the first thing we do when we arrive at the jail is pull the tables um, all together and the chairs around the table so that, so that we are sitting in a circle. We open our time together by going around with each person, saying their name and then saying something positive from the last week and something challenging, um, just as a way to check in with each other. Then we have somebody from the group volunteers to read the poem, usually twice and um, then we go around our circle again with every person offering some sort of comment about the poem. They can just read back a line they liked or they can ask a question or they can say what they didn't like um, and if they want to they can always pass as well. So then that starts our discussion about the poem and then we usually move into about 10 minutes of free writing, fast writing time where we have silence and everybody is responding to one of the prompts that we bring in, usually related to a theme from the poem. Um, they are always welcome to write to anything that is um, on their minds. 
And then we have our last thing is to go around the circle again and give each person an opportunity to read their writing that they just did. They can read a little bit of it or they can read the whole thing just to hear each other's voices and stories. It's been really fun to have Wendy in the circle because she's a real poet and she always brings in just a fresh perspective on the mechanics of the poem or the vocabulary or what the, what the poet might be getting at. And so it's been really great to have her there. Uh, I got started with New Leaf, New Life, I guess originally from my involvement with Monster House Press because we did a uh, publication for New Leaf, New Life called Poems from the Jail Dorm. And that was when I got kind of introduced to uh, what, was, what was going on with the writing programs in the jail. Um, and so when I finished my MFA in poetry at IU, I decided that I wanted to keep, keep doing some kind of involvement with uh, teaching poetry, and I wanted that to take the shape of working with a population that doesn't necessarily have access to that kind of education very often. So I thought, well, New Leaf, New Life seems like a good thing. So I um, went through the orientation, and I had initially wanted to work with the women's uh, writing group, but it wasn't on a day that worked for me. So I heard that maybe Laura needed some help. So I was like, sure, I'll do that. It's been a really good experience. Um, probably the best part of my week generally is going in there and doing this. And I really love teaching writing to people who don't think that they are writers and kind of helping them surprise themselves with how deeply they can think about writing and how much they can notice and what they can accomplish in just, you know, a little over an hour. You know, the environment changes everything, in my opinion, because, you know, I, I like to think that the guys would decide to come to a creative writing class if they didn't, if it wasn't the only way for them to get out of the block for a while and get treated like a human being. But I think that um, I don't know that they would choose to come to a writing class necessarily if they if they had the freedom to choose more, more things. Um, so I, I think that that really changes their relationship to what we do um, because they are really invested because it's the only it's one of the only things they can do to get out of the block on a given day. And so um, I always feel like they are really um, invested and engaged in a way that I've very rarely seen any of my students be engaged in, um, especially because what I've the classes I've taught at IU are uh, introductory creative writing. It's a required course. And so the students are oftentimes there to get an easy A or they don't really want to be there, but they just didn't want to take business writing or something like that. So um, some of, you know, there's always some that are really engaged, but I, I always feel like the, the guys in the jail are always just really on super on board and very present to what we're doing. And I, like I said, I don't know how much of that it is the environment. I think that there, to me, it speaks to that they're hungry for uh, a situation in which they're they're treated humanely, and they they get to like interact with us in a different way than than they usually do throughout their day. So I think it's more so that they're hungry for that than than you know listening to po poetry, you know, learning about poetry exactly. But um, you know, that's what's cool about it is that we get to do both of those things. We get to provide that environment for them, and we get to teach them poetry, which we like 
to talk about and think about. I also teach 11th graders at Brown County High School on um, Wednesday mornings. And uh, see, how do they compare to the folks in the jail? I think similarly, they're kind of just forced to be there but they're not as uh, they they have to be there because they're in school and they're they're forced to be with me because their teacher decided that I was going to come in once a week and talk about poetry. But I think that um, that environment just seems like to be much more about like impressing each other and one upping each other. <laughs> I mean that occasionally happens in the jail, but um, the social dynamics are really different with high schoolers. I think the jail environment is a really powerful place, sort of out of out of world, out of time. So like Wendy was saying, the, the guys that choose to come to this class are already in a, in a position where they can choose to evaluate what's happening in their lives. And this is just a platform to nudge that instinct. And so, yeah, they're at a really really vulnerable, really open place. And I think they bring that into the class, which makes for some powerful writing and powerful reflection. And what we do in the circle, I feel, is intentionally creating a space that is exactly the opposite of the culture of the jail, creating a space of openness and um, listening and self-determination. Um, and, and I think that also is a lens um, is a powerful thing in that space but we also are very limited our classes the classes at women writing for a change are usually two and a half hours long with at least an hour devoted to small group time where a person can read from an ongoing piece of work um, and receive feedback so we we don't really get into giving feedback to each other in the jail on our writing, and it's much harder to have continuation of writing. We write about 10 minutes every time on a different topic, but rarely do we. I don't think we ever go back and craft something or continue on a longer piece because the members of the class are often changing. We don't always have the same people in the class, basically. So that's one of the main reasons it's different. We do get some feedback from the men about the class. There's always a lot of gratitude at the end. We, we usually close our circles going around and everybody says just one word and generally they're positive or funny. And then as we're waiting for the um, officers, the correctional officers to come, people are really grateful for our work there. I When I did this in the air dorm, there was a lot of feedback about the, just the presence of volunteers, the presence of people who are coming in, they would say sort of unconditionally to, you know, just be with them. So I, I know that that makes a difference in their day. I don't know to what extent, but I do hear appreciation. I haven't really heard anything from beyond what Laura is saying of, of, you know, the few minutes after the class before we get let out by the correctional officers. Um, just them being really grateful and thanking us and you know they they want to come back i think generally we if if someone is still in the dorm and still in i block they're going to come back and participate again so um i think it's really nice when we get like a few repeated 
um, members of the class because they can kind of build on what they were doing before and they can build on their knowledge a little bit and they can also set a tone for everyone else of kind of how how to act and how how it's going to go and when I was doing New Leaf New Life's Poems from the Jail Dorm with Monster House Press I think that that pu publication and the event that followed it are, were a good opportunity to kind of hear from people about how that creative writing class being in the jail is valuable and helpful. They had an event where people read. Yeah, I, I believe that at that event, the guys kind of talked about what it had meant to them. Personally, one of the things that is important about this class as opposed to some of the other classes that for a little while the jail was more interested in investing in like, you know, job training, which is important, um, and, and educational, like directly academic courses which are also really important, but sort of thing that the guys get in this class is that opportunity to strengthen their character and their courage and their resolve in the face of really often very discouraging situations. And so even though, so sometimes it can feel like it's hard to say why this matters, that men come together to write or to read their writing, but I feel like it's that strengthening of heart and courage that they get. And then they hear also in the writing, they hear other people saying the struggles that they have and the kind of hopes that they have for their own lives. And that there's a, a therapeutic power in that that I know um, people in the social work field can attest to. There was one day when we were doing a class and in the check-in period where we do kind of one good thing, one bad thing. I can't remember this person's name, but he had kind of just gotten there and he was new to the whole system, like he had never been in jail before. And they will often talk about how, you know, it's a restrictive environment and, and it causes people a lot of stress to be in that kind of environment where they can't control their food, they can't control their movement, they can't control much of anything. And so this person who had just arrived was, was saying that their negative point was that they had gotten very upset with their bunkie, which is what they call their roommate, um, because he had stolen his bar of soap. And he was kind of saying, like, he was remarking, I can't believe that I care about this bar of soap. Like, it's just a bar of soap. I wouldn't care about this outside at all, but because it's all I had and I don't have any money in my commissary and so I can't get any more soap. And so he was talking about how he he really felt like hurting this his bunkie and but then someone else who was actually also in our class, his name was Mr. Love, I guess. That's his last name was Mr. was Love. And he was like, oh, Mr. Love over here came and he doesn't even know me. And he came and brought me his soap and like gave him his soap. He was just like, it meant so much to me. Like he was almost like crying. Mm -hmm. And um, so I feel like I cannot see that interaction happening in the block. Like I cannot see that conversation happening in the block. Like, I think that that kind of story could only really happen, like, in the environment that we're creating. And I think that that moment of, like, tenderness and mercy probably affected everybody who was there. This is a piece written by Robert Hall called Happiness Is. Happiness is knowing I belong and am loved, giving my love unconditionally, loving and being loved, safety for my family, 
a fountain, Mountain Dew, and a cigarette. Giving of myself, spending time with my mom, being able to forgive myself for the mistakes I make. I'm only human and it's natural to make mistakes. I just need to learn from them. Spending time with loved ones without fear of judgment is acceptance. Being able to help someone, our children, and being able to care for them. Laying my head down at night to sleep. Knowing my family is there and safe. A loving look or smile or even an impression of being loved. Freedom, theoretical and real. Knowledge of something done well. Financial and emotional security. Having someone to say, I love you too. Hearing someone say, I love you to you. Taking a walk on a spring day and not worrying about where you're going or coming from. Telling my family I'm going to rehab and hearing their voices congratulate me. This is a piece by Ryan Gregory. If I could wake up anywhere in the world of my choice, I would want to wake up 12 years ago on the semi riding with my dad on the top bunk, coming to consciousness with my first sense of hearing, first of the loud engine shifting gears, followed by my dad talking on the CB radio, then second, me seeing the new scenery outside the window. Guessing where we were made me feel like a journey before the day started. Waking up every day to a new place and different dialects of English and culture and climate and sceneries. This is an untitled poem by Rhett Lewis in memory of his dad, David Allen Lewis. Arrive, my darling, and declare my furlough far from this, enduring dungeon of despair till morning parts our kiss. Until your thighs that lie in wait and lips which part to love me are sealed before all dreamers' fate, as stars dissolve above me. To the One You Love by James Lank Whatever you do, wherever you go, just remember my undying love will always be with you. When I think of you, I use your light to lead me through those long dark nights that I thought I would never see. As I sit in my cell, I get to thinking about what happened, how I ended up in this place, why did I choose to do what I did, and I just hate this place, but then I start thinking about how this place has caused me to be the person I am today, and I start appreciating this place and thanking God for another opportunity to do what's right. Because when I was out doing my own thing, I could have died in my mess, but God kept me, even when I was out there doing wrong. As I sit in this place, I start thinking about Jonah in the belly of the fish, and how he ended up there, because he was disobedient to God, and he would do what God had called him to do. And I start thinking about my life because I know I'm called by God to do his work, and I have been doing nothing but running in the other direction. And God has to get our attention somehow, and sometimes in places like this, because he can get our attention in places like this, because we ain't got nothing but time to reflect on our life. And now since I have been here, I have made up my mind to get out and go into the ministry and be a great witness for Jesus and be a big inspiration to everyone I can, and build people up and not put them down. I want to start a prison ministry in Alaska when I get back. It's probably in about one to two years from when I get out. And that's to help guys and women that are incarcerated and to encourage them to do better. 
We received a message about the following audio from our friends at the Prison Radio Show, based out of Canada. They write us about Muti Ajamu Oseburu, who is currently serving life without parole in Pennsylvania State Prison. And now the following is just one of several pieces written and recorded by Muti from the inside. Recorded on November 24th, this is him reading his work, Black Friday, European Holiday. Subject, Black Friday, European Holiday. Jay-Z was right when he said, steal me and expect me not to feel this way till this day, you should say, y'all kill me, sucker free, no shucking me, I don't jive turkey, so happy Thanksgiving, sound like a murder to me. That was, was free, Meek Mill, featuring Rick Ross and Jay-Z. In less than two weeks, it will be another American holiday, genocide day, as is known amongst the cultural conscious collective however called Thanksgiving Day by many others. It's a historical occurrence where unsettlers from Europe came to what was then called Turtle Island and genocidally removed the original 500 nations off this continent and renamed the landmass America, renamed the First Nation people Indians because the unsettlers were geographically challenged and thought they were in India. The writer Mumia Abu-Jamal chronicles this murderous Euro carnage well in his latest book, Murder Incorporated, Volume 1. But it is the holiday after so-called Thanksgiving that is the focus of this piece. Black Friday could be said to be white supremacy's number one holiday. Socialists would say that it is capitalism's chief holiday, but capitalism is merely one of the pillars in America's white supremacy. Misogyny, and patriarchy being two others, but not limited to either of them. So when I mention the words like capitalist and capitalism, I am referring to the underlying systemic American white supremacy, because like any conscious African exercising cultural sense, I truly understand that some of the most virulent white supremacists in this nation are socialists and capitalists alike. It does not matter if the capitalist or the socialist has a black or brown face. Loyalty to the mind frame and practice is what is paramount. Most people in this country don't know why it's called Black Friday. This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Brackville. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. Don't know why it's called Black Friday or why this holiday is looked at with such loving and lustful eyes by soft and hardcore capitalists. The only time during the entire year that whites promote black as positive. For the Fortune 400 country companies, there are only two existence all year, red and black. When a company is operating in the red, red ink, that means it is losing money. It is in debt. When the company is operating in the black, black ink, that means it is making money. It is operating in profit. Most major corporations operate for the first three quarters of the fiscal year, the business calendar, in the red, debt. They are losing money. If that continues for the last quarter of the year, it could and usually does go out of business, bankrupt, and close its doors for good. However, the fourth quarter surge, which starts the day after so-called Thanksgiving, is responsible for keeping 95% of American corporations running healthy and successful. This happens because on Black Friday, U.S. consumers caught up in the mythology of several American holidays back to back to back to back 
that promote excessive material consumption as value, a substitute or replacement for the virtue of plain human fellowship with family, friends, neighbors, comrades, and to a much lesser degree, relatives. This mass spending frenzy infuses large amounts of cash into corporate coffers to bring these companies out of the red and into the living black. Thus, Black Friday is literally the lifeblood of American capitalism's success. Said another way, if the average consumer of products and goods and services refused to support capitalism's big payday, it would be, ironically, a beautiful pro-black death overnight. Corporations would start collapsing four or five at a time. The larger companies could hold out longer, but eventually would fold also under the weight created by the power of the This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Brackville. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. But eventually would fold also under the weight created by the power of withholding our consumer dollars. There are very few things in America more powerful than consumers determined not to spend their money with targeted businesses, whether it's a boycott, divestment, or sanction. Determined consumers are fierce arbiters as to what businesses live or die. The colorofchange.org has used this tactic well. This was part of the strategy used by Africans globally in order to topple the white supremacist government in Anzania, called to some as South Africa. At least from matter that it was constructed because they have reconfigured the regime with euphemism and jargon, just like their bigger brother, America. When consumers withheld withdrawal happens, corporations that usually wantonly exploit us by overcharging for their products and underpaying or bullying their workers' systems, they drop the prices of the former and raise the pay of the latter in attempt to restore control of the exploitative relationship. When we still refuse to purchase their product, they file bankruptcy and close up. American capitalism as the underlying in the superstructure of the systemic white supremacy. The irony is that it promotes the virtues of blackness via Black Friday, but even this positive association of black by raw capitalism is really extremely negative because it actually says that black people are not positive until they give their money to rich whites. Black people's money will help white companies move out of the negative debt and into the positive profit. Companies smugly signify black people will go into the red debt for giving us their black profit. Boycott, divest, and sanction Black Friday so cannibalistic companies can experience a bloody Sunday in the bowels of America's Terror Dome. I am Muti Ajumur Saburu, a child from Pennsylvania's other death row, death by incarceration, engineered by the city of Philadelphia. For interviews, contact the Innocence Project International Campaign to free Muti now at innocent.criminal51 at gmail.com and juveniles are us at gmail.com or one two one five eight three nine six two seven three. This has been Kite Line. 
Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash kiteline. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.